Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Proverbs 21, verse 9. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Right, this one's famous. Um, the corner of a housetop has a cultural explanation. Um, in, in Jerusalem, Israel, Israel their, their houses, their roofs were flat and they had they would use the, their roofs for place, places to rest. And basically it was a cheap and an out of the way place to be. It, it would be correlative in our culture to a cheap and dumpy apartment or a dorm room or a buddy's sofa. Um, basically it's a place to crash and not much more. And the proverb says that it's better to live there than in a mansion with a contentious woman. So what's a contentious woman? Uh, the word contentious could also be translated brawling or argumentative. A contentious woman is a lady who's looking for a fight. And this may be temporary as if she had what's called a bad hair day and uh, you just don't want to be around that day. Or uh, it might be deeper and worse, such as if she's uh, a bitter person or, or uh, and contentious is an apt description for her most of the time. She's usually nagging and picking and rarely happy or content. The woman part has to do with the fact that her emotions are strong and her words and actions are affected by her spirit or her mood. This proverb may be the contrast between sweet marriage and bad marriage. For instance, you could be happy in a sweet and healthy marriage in the most meager of circumstances, in the corner of a housetop, in the arms of love, and miserable in, a grand and gilded, in the grand and gilded halls of a mansion with a harpy. Or it may be a contrast between getting alone or getting away from some, just, just that loneliness is better than being in the presence of, of an angry woman. Regardless, the proverb is a statement of truth, and it's a descriptive straight statement that takes wisdom to apply. And that means we must wrestle with it, and it has something to say for everyone, for all of us. First, women don't be contentious. It makes you unattractive, and it physically repels your husband from you. Instead, be lovely. Peter instructs this way. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Young ladies, grace is one of the best attributes you can strive for. Grace will make you lovely and will make you precious to God and lovely to men. Men. We have a saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If mama isn't happy, 
things are not well and it is not okay. It's not okay to live like that. Your job is to make sure that mama is happy. If your woman is on the rampage, maybe she has a reason. Make sure that your suffering is not justified. If you have sinned against her, confess it, repent, and ask for forgiveness. Because a soft answer turneth away great wrath. Moreover, be a man. Be her man. Don't be lazy. Don't be a pushover. Don't walk away. And don't be mean. Even if she isn't justified in her anger, you are better off loving her through this and teaching her, by example, what Jesus expects of you and her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how is that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is also true for your daughters. Single men, take this as a, this proverb as a warning and an injunction to marry Christians. Because, well, to marry Christian ladies whose beauty is more than skin deep. Marriage is, an, marriage is an amplifier, and good marriages are beautiful. They're lovely, and there's nothing better. But bad marriages are one of the most miserable things in the world. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. missionary journey and they've just been kicked out of Antioch and Pisidia which is in central Turkey and they were expelled from Antioch and we read at the end of chapter 13 they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit so they came to Iconium Iconium was about 60 miles east of Antioch and it's still in Turkey it was an old city, an ancient city. It was near the region of Phrygia. And Phrygia was spanned the distance from Antioch to Iconium. So, so the, the borders were on both sides. Um, so Antioch was on the border of Pisidia and Phrygia. And, uh, and uh, Iconium was on the, the border of Phrygia and uh, Lycaonia, or Lycaonia. So, but Iconium was the capital city of Lycaonia, but its culture was Phrygian. <laughs> okay, these are funny words. <laughs> I'm sorry, so try and stick with me. Um, it was a Phrygian culture, which um, uh, was the region that it was near the border of, um, but it was actually the capital of of Lycaonia, which was a, a different culture. Um, Iconium was popular uh, to the Romans. The Romans liked this city because it, it supported their cause. It, it, it helped them out. In fact, at this time, Iconium had been given the honorary title of Claudiconium because the emperor Claudius wanted to honor it by giving it that title. 
Um, Iconium was in a fertile agricultural area, and it was right on a major trade route from the east to the west, from the east, Ephesus to the west, Tarsus and Syria, all the way over the Euphrates River. So it was, it was a, a, a bustling town, and, and even today, it's, Iconium is called Konya in, in, in Turkey, and it, it's a large, bustling city. And so Paul and Barnabas show up at this Greek city. It was, it was, it was a Roman, a Roman, Roman rule, but it, it, their government was was Greek. So it, there's there's a distinction there. But but uh, it was it was a Greek city, and and they go to where else but the synagogue, chapter 14, verse one. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. Okay, so this is a little bit repetitive. This is, this is the pattern that, that Paul and Barnabas are setting. They've just recently been expelled by the Jews out of Antioch, but that doesn't stop them from preaching the gospel to the Jews in Iconium. They're on a mission to proclaim the gospel, and the message always goes to the Jews first. And it's interesting that this is the case, especially when you consider that their greatest opponents are usually the Jews. It's the Jews that stir up the Gentiles. It's the Jews that oppose the gospel. It's the Jews that killed Jesus. It's the Jews that killed Stephen. The, the Jews are the ones who are given the promises. They're given the scriptures, but yet the gospel always goes to them first. And again, we see the tremendous success of the preaching. Their message is powerful. They so spoke that great multitudes, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. And, and notice that Luke, the, the author of Acts, isn't he, he's, he's not even writing out the sermon anymore. He's, he's sort of glossed over that. He just says, they so spoke. They so spoke that great multitudes believed. And the reason he glosses over it is because it's not necessary. He's been telling us again and again through the course of Acts. He told us at Pentecost in Peter's sermon. He told us in Stephen's defense. He told us in Philip's preaching. He told us in Paul's sermon a couple of weeks ago in Antioch. We can be certain that the message was nothing less than a bold proclamation from the scriptures and history and from experience that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the scriptures, and he brings salvation and forgiveness of sins. The message is powerful, and it is powerful, especially when preached in the spirit and with conviction. So its tremendous success should be expected by now. Everywhere Paul goes, the gospel explodes. Now, of course... The Jewish, the Jewish opposition is right around the corner. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. The text is, again, brief here. Unbelieving Jews stirred the Gentiles. And it doesn't even tell us if they're the Jews from Antioch who followed Paul over, or if they're just local, local discontents, local people who reject the gospel on, on the first hearing of it. And, and either option is possible. News travels fast. This is, this is news. This is the gospel. This is going out. It's what's, what, what's been happening in the world is being rumored. So, but, but, there, but either way, 
whether it's the Jews from Antioch or it's the local Jews, the result is the same. They, the Jews stirred the pot. They've altered the effect of the gospel by interfering and opposing Paul and Barnabas' preaching. And it, it'll be profitable here to take a moment and consider what's, what's actually going on. The Jews are not opposed in principle to what's going on. To, they're not opposed in principle to converting Gentiles from Gentile worship. In fact, they, they were in favor of Gentile converts to Judaism. That, that was what they wanted to see happen. Their chief objection to the Christian gospel was in the grand success of the gospel, the glorious prosperity of the gospel in converting souls. Multitudes of both the Jews and the Greeks believed. Remember last week? It was when they saw that multitudes of Gentiles were coming to hear the message of the gospel that they were jealous. And their jealousy was aroused and they opposed and blasphemed the apostles' message because of the success of the Christian apostles. And the Jews also took offense at the proclamation of the gospel because of the free grace that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles outside of the constraints of the law of Moses. Back in, in Paul's sermon in chapter 13, he said, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached to you, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So they're, they're taking offense that he's, he's taking away their hegemony or their, their ability to dictate what the faith was. Because he's saying the law of Moses, the thing that identifies or separates the Jews from the nations, wasn't able to justify you, but Jesus can. And so for these reasons, the Jews oppose the gospel. But there's something very interesting going on here. And then what's interesting is that they had the ear of the Gentiles and were able to poison their minds against the gospel. Think about that. How are these Jews able to poison the minds of the Gentiles against the gospels? The Gentiles were Greeks. They were polytheists. They worshipped the gods of the Greeks, Zeus and Hermes and, and, and Hera, and they, and they had all these temples, and they, they worshipped all these different petty demons and demigods, and, and the Jews' religion was opposed to that. It, it was antithetical to the Greek religion. Remember, there's nothing in principle wrong with getting Greeks to convert to Judaism or Christianity. The Jews weren't fans of the false religion. They weren't in favor of it, but they were comfortable with it. The Jews were comfortable with the false religion because they were not a threat to Judaism. They, they were happy to do their thing, and they were happy to let us alone and do our thing. Right? That's, the, that's what the Jews are thinking. And the Jews were perceptive enough to see and to understand that Christianity was every bit a threat to Judaism 
as it then existed. Now the Christians, the, the Jews who converted to Christianity, they saw Christianity rightly as the fulfillment of God's message to man all through the scriptures. It is the true Judaism. It's, it's, it's what Judaism was always meant and purposed to be. But Jesus was abolishing the national limitations of salvation. And, and, and he was offering free grace outside of the law. And for the Jews, of, of these unbelieving Jews, that is something that they saw correctly as a threat to their, their view of what Judaism was. And this is where the Jews get really shrewd. So they, 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 they correctly see Christianity as a threat to their, to their existence as, as they are. But they were also perceptive enough to see that Christianity was just as much a threat to the Greek religion. They, they could see that they, they, could have, they could have a, a, an alliance with the Greeks because they both would oppose Christianity. Because, uh, because their own efforts to win converts from the Greeks were minimally successful. They, there were Greeks that were God-fearers. There were Greeks that would attend synagogue worship. But it was, a, it was a very, very minor encroachment on the culture. But their desire and their aim was the same as Paul's, but, but they were no imminent threat to the Greeks. But that's not true of the Gospel. Because when the Gospel comes, it was imminently successful. Remember, a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. So the Jews stirred up the Gentiles and they poisoned their minds against the apostles, against the message of the gospel. And by now, Paul and Barnabas are getting used to opposition and they're not going to back down. Verse 3. Therefore they stayed there a long time, Speaking boldly in the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This is where we see Paul and Barnabas' sustained ministry. And the ministry was sustained in three ways. First, it was a sustained ministry. It was a long-term ministry. They stayed there a long time. Paul and Barnabas were tenacious, and they were persistent. They aren't afraid of a fight. They have the truth. They have a message. And they have the Holy Spirit. And what that Spirit gives them is a love for the lost. And that means they're willing to put themselves out, put themselves out there, on the behalf of the lost. They're willing to fight and to proclaim the gospel, even in the midst of opposition. It takes a long time to counteract prejudices, which is precisely what they're encountering. You remember the Jews had poisoned the minds of the Gentiles? It takes a long time to explain, to convince, and to convict and it takes a long time for their new converts because they needed their teaching. They needed instruction. They needed protection 
And they needed guidance in this hostile environment. Paul and Barnabas stuck it out. Their, their, their ministry was sustained in Iconium. The second way their ministry was sustained was by it was carried as, as by how it was carried out. How, how was it sustained? It was sustained by bold speaking. This is the means of sustenance. Paul and Barnabas are bold, and particularly they are bold in the Lord. The verse reads, speaking boldly in the Lord. Paul and Barnabas are apostles. They are, the, the word apostle means sent ones. They are ambassadors. They are messengers. And their method of delivering the message must match the meaning of the message. It matters where they're coming from. It matters what they're saying. And because those things matter, it matters how they say it. You cannot preach the gospel sheepishly. In essence, Paul and, and Barnabas are saying that God, who made everything, heaven and earth, and who crowned Jesus in the resurrection and the ascension, has sent them with good news. With big news. And it's good news of salvation and life and forgiveness of sin for believers. And wretched news of condemnation and destruction for despisers. So, it's a, two, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, the gospel is. It divides, it separates... It separates. It separates the believers from the unbelievers. It, for the believers, it's life. It's health. It's wholeness. It's everything beautiful. It's, it's everything to them. And for unbelievers, it's revelation of God. A God who is holy. A God who, who cares about what's going on in this world. A God who loves men and the creation that he made. And a God who will judge sin. And if you don't turn away from it, you will suffer His judgment. This message cannot be preached sheepishly. They must be pulled because they are in the Lord. This is turning everything that is known or expected on its head. This is political upheaval. It's nothing short of a brand new way of being human. For the Greeks, this means no longer are we at the mercy of petty or ever-changing demigods and demons. No more. No longer are we at the mercy of blind fate or endlessly doomed to the never-ending gyrations of philosophy. That's what it means for the Greeks. What it means for the Greeks is absolute truth has come down, and he is a man, and he will judge your sin, or he will save you. That's your choice. It changes everything. For the Jews, this means... No longer do we long for a Messiah, only to see those hopes dash generation after generation. No longer must we pour out the blood of sheep or goats or bulls or chickens or doves 
to pay for our sins. Jesus paid for them. And this is the one that's hard for them to swallow, but no longer are we separated from the Gentiles. The gospel is for all people. It comes from the Jews. We're honored by the fact that Jesus was Jewish. We're honored by the fact that the gospels came to us. We're honored by the fact, as Christians, the Jewish Christians, that God separated us out and, and called us to be his own special people. But we must come to grips with the fact that that means we are to be a light to all men. And we are to be free and open with the salvation that God is giving to us. We are not to use it and wield it as a weapon against the nations. This is political upheaval. It changes everything. Because God has communicated to man. God is with us. God loved us and he paid the price for us. We belong to him in the first place because he made us, but he bought us again. And now Greeks and Jews may be united in Christ. And all separation has been removed between God and man. And because that separation has been removed, now the separation between man and his brother can be removed. How can Paul and Barnabas try and preach this message limply? They definitely spoke boldly in the Lord. The third way their ministry was sustained was that God sustained their witness by granting miracles and signs. They weren't left with just words. They were given miracles. Paul and Barnabas are messengers of the one true God. And he has borne them witness by supernatural means for the sake of the spread of the gospel. So their, their ministry is sustained. It's, it lasts a long time. It's sustained by bold preaching and it's sustained by God's witness that these men are my men. So what's the fallout? What, what, what comes of this? Well, division, persecution, and the spread of the gospel. Verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. First thing we see is division. The apostles come boldly speaking the truth. They are light. Jesus says, you are, you, are, you are the light of the world. The apostles come and they speak light. And the light of God's revelation on men causes division. Because it shows who they are and how they relate to a holy, sovereign, and merciful Lord. That's the gospel. It's good news. Jesus is, is, he loved the world. He died for the world. He came to save the world. But that light, the light of love, brings division. Because those who reject it are clearly seen for what they are. 
In the, in, in the, in the New Testament, we read that uh, those who believe become the aroma of life leading to life. But for unbelievers, they become the aroma of death leading to death. Before the gospel comes, they're all living in a shadow world. Things are confusing. They're mixed. They're frustrating. But then Jesus comes. The gospel comes. And now we see clearly. In the light of the gospel truth, we see Jesus Christ. And we either love him or we hate him. But he cannot be sort of loved and sort of hated. He will be spewed out if you become lukewarm. If you believe in him, you love him because he is life. If you don't believe in him, he's condemnation against your sin. Now, the interesting thing is that it is here that the real division exists in, in mankind. I mean, prior to this, you know, it's it, it looks like, you know, we have the Jews and the Gentiles, right? But now, now God comes and sheds light, and, and now the true division is, is seen. Because Jesus tells us he, brought, he came to bring division. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus tells us it's deeper than just Jew and Gentile. No, we're, we're talking about within the same family we're divided. Now Jew is separated from Jew. Gentile is separated from Gentile. Father from son. Brother from brother. Sister from sister. Christ is the great divide. And it's the divide that separates us for all eternity. It means, what it means is that in this world, there's two sides. You don't have any other options. You can be with Christ and alive, or outside of Him and not alive, dead. But Christ is love. How is love the source of division? I mean, love is love, right? I mean, love is good. It's, I mean, well, our world likes to, to confuse us with the language of love and think that everything is lovey-dovey, everything is rosy, everything is, is good. All things are good. Everything's relative, right? No. Everything is not relative. Love is absolute because God is absolute. Love casts everything else in sharp relief. It's like, it's like bringing a bright light down. So it makes everything that's not love ugly. Envy and bitterness, pettiness and cruelty become obvious. And that will not be tolerated by the heart of man in his pride. Men 
in their pride, think highly of themselves. But when love comes and shows them for what they are, and they see how ugly they are, their, their bitterness and their envy and their pettiness and their cruelty, they hate that. It brings that out in them. So they accuse the love for their own faults. They hate it. And the result of the division is persecution. I mean, who likes their faults flaunted in front of them? So, so the Jews start attacking the church. And the Jews and the Gentiles, over the course of this long period where Paul and Barnabas have a sustained ministry in Iconium, finally get so frustrated that just like the Jews in Jerusalem, they resort to throwing rocks. Verses 5 to 7. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So the Jews and the Gentiles, just like the Jews with Jesus, the, 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 remember the Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin with Jesus, or the Jews and Stephen, if we can't beat you in fair argument and dialogue and intellect and wisdom, we'll just throw rocks. We'll just get rid of you. We're just going to remove, remove the source of our frustration. But God preserved the apostles from the persecution. They found out about it, and they fled. Ultimately, God used it to further spread the gospel. So they, they left the capital of the region of Lyconia, and they went into the surrounding regions of Lyconia, into the, the places that were... They spoke the Lyconian language. They went to Lystra and Derby. And they, pre and they preached the gospel there. And that's where we'll pick up next week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Behold, the Gentiles have seen a great light. This is the third Sunday after Epiphany. It is still a season of celebrating the going out of the gospel into the world. God has set his light on a hill. The gospel is a bright and shining beacon, calling all men to worship God in spirit and in truth, repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus in faith. Paul and Barnabas went about lighting the world on fire. And as we saw today, wherever they went, they preached the gospel there. One of the glorious things about the gospel, though, is that it is an invitation to a great feast. God calls all his people together to be nourished by the one true Passover lamb. Jesus died and he feeds us here at this table. But this table is a symbol of something far greater, the marriage supper of the lamb. This meal is only a foretaste of the true feast we shall enjoy in all eternity with our God in everlasting life. The gospel brings peace, and we truly do celebrate 
the Lord's Supper. We rest in Jesus. We trust Him to carry out our salvation and bring us through the wilderness of this world and sin. But we don't have to do it alone. We get to do it with Him and with each other. Let us rejoice in our inclusion in this meal. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.